the Secret Circle. Welcome to Secret Circle with me, Dr. Luke Decker, the podcast where I chat with authors, musicians, filmmakers, and more about the art of their craft and let you in on some of their secrets. Uh, today's guest is William Hussey, the author of Killing Jericho, uh, Broken Hearts and Zombie Parts and The Outrage and more. Uh, and today we're going to let you in on some of his secrets. Welcome, William, to the show. Hi. Thank you, Luke. Thank you for having me. That's uh, my my pleasure, my pleasure. Um, one question I ask all my guests, particularly if they are if they're writers of of any kind, is a philosophical question at the beginning, and that is why why do you write? Mm. Well, it's it's a tricky one to answer because I feel like I've always written. Like I started off um, actually being inspired by well, my roots are in horror rather than crime. Um, that's where, where I really started off. And um, I always think that a lot of writers, when they look back on their life, can't remember that particular moment when they got interested in the genre that ends up, you know, uh, defining them to a certain extent. And yeah. I'm slightly unusual because I can remember the very day I got interested in horror. Awesome. It was my sixth birthday. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and my mum was cooking me this, like, special birthday breakfast before I went to school. And my dad came into the kitchen and he'd been away at the weekend working away. And he bought me like this little extra top up present without consulting my mum, <laughs> which was never a good idea because my dad always bought the most inappropriate presents for people and thought they were <laughs> perfect. And what he'd bought me were these bound editions of Tales from the Crypt, uh, oh, the yeah. comic book, obviously, very famous in America, slightly yeah. less so in the UK. And I didn't actually realize that until I did a bit of research, it was banned in the UK when oh. my dad was a kid, when he would have been reading it. Oh, wow. So he was getting these kind of like um, bootleg, in a way, versions of, anyway, years later, he loved them so much that he bought me these bound editions that he found in like this old antique shop, which is a, in a way a kind of the beginning of a Tales from the Crypt episode in itself. Absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so he gave them to me. And my mum, I remember vividly, she was cooking at the stove cooking the breakfast. And she looked over her shoulder and she said, oh, what has your dad got you? And she saw me with my head buried in this comic with a disintegrating zombie corpse on the front. <laughs> and she let out this scream and started chasing my dad around the kitchen, uh -huh. and kind of asking him quite a reasonable question and just saying, are you totally mental buying out six-year-old yes. horror comics? He's never going to be able to sleep. Um, and I absolutely love them. I just devoured them. So, and uh, yeah, so they inspired me to start kind of writing and drawing my own horror comics. So that's how I got into it. Uh, and it, you know, I think sometimes with authors, if you ever go to these very grand literary kind of <laughs> festivals, they give you a very perfect, you know, I always started reading Dickens when I was eight. <laughs> you know, uh, but I mean, I love Dickens, but you know, I yeah. wasn't sophisticated enough to read them, eh? But, um, yeah, so I kind of, like, started writing and drawing these horror comics. I got to secondary school, and at secondary school I had a brilliant English teacher called mm. Mrs. Breeds. But she was slightly, it, on the surface, a very intimidating presence. Um, right. Always seemed to be annoyed and angry about something at the time. <laughs> but once she dug under it, she was absolutely lovely. And um, she said to me, I remember it's first week or something at secondary mm. school, I was quite nervous and intimidated by everything. And she said to me, oh, I hear that you write and draw these horror comics. I'd love to see them, bring them in. 
And she didn't know what she'd let herself in for because I've been doing it for like five years by that point. So I took her at her word and we just got boxes. <laughs> and bless her, what she was great at was she does did that brilliant thing of being very supportive. Mm. But I always say to young writers when I go into schools, you don't, what you need as a writer is you don't want the kind of encouragement that your parents give you when you bring a picture back, like from nursery school. And they yes. treat it as though it's the greatest piece of art that has ever been, you know, they put it on the fridge and they they show it off to the neighbours and, uh, you know, the grandparents. <laughs> you need someone to say, you know, it's good, but here's how you can improve it. You don't yeah. need, you know. So she was great at that. And she was like, because at that time, I didn't appreciate that in a thriller story, you need to build up tension and suspense. Yeah. So everyone was being brutally murdered and decapitated on the first page of this <laughs> comic. So she was great at all that, great at trying to, you know, widen my um, my reading. Mm. She was saying, you know, don't just read one genre. You That might be your love, but you'll learn lots of things from different other genres. Yes. But what was great, <laughs> I mean, you'd never get away with it in schools these days, but she said to me, there's one thing you can't improve about these comics, though. And she said, and that's the drawings. And I mm. remember puffing out my 11-year-old chest and thinking, yeah, because they're awesome. And she looked at me in her very direct way and she said, these are the worst drawings I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, and she said, like, even the stick figures in the backgrounds, they don't really look like stick figures. So she was, but as I say, you'd have to couch it in much more, um, you know, softer yeah. words these days but no she was very direct and she said this is not where your talent lies I yeah and um so she said and I think this is what happens with all writers is I always say to kids no one sits down on day one and thinks I'm going to be a writer and starts writing a novel yeah we all start with little stories little paragraphs here and there and uh, with for me it was these comics and you develop your ability from there so yeah so um and the other part of it was um so obviously in Killing Jericho, the mm. main character is from a traveling fairground background. Yeah. And that was my background. And the truth of the matter is that a lot of people who grew up in that, because they didn't have regular schooling, because you're always moving around the country, mm. many of them are illiterate. Uh, mm. Virtually all of my uh, family over the age of about 50 are. Mm. And so what they did, which I grew up with, was oral storytelling. Yeah. And my grandparents would tell me stories uh, and they'd be episodic. So almost in a Dickensian type way. Yeah. So every night there'd be the next chapter of the story, but it would be right. told to you. And they'd be making it up on the spot. No. And they always leave you on a cliffhanger. <laughs> and I think what that did was it gave me, and I think this is the hardest thing to teach if you teach writing, is pace. Oh, yes. And uh, it gave me a feel for pace. Mm in a way that maybe just reading wouldn't have. Yeah. So that's my very long answer to your question. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, I like that. I like that. You, it, you kind of made me think of, it, of another question along the way when you were saying how your teacher, you know, she was a bit, she was very blunt with mm. her, with her teaching and that you really couldn't get away with that today. Um, in some ways I'm like, that, that's it kind of, you know, that seems like a bad thing a little bit mm. because sometimes I think, you know, you don't want to be mean by, by all means, you don't want to be mean to a student. Um, but I do think, I do think a, a, a sort of a, a blunt way of, of being honest with the student and saying, 
this is definitely where your talent lies. This is not where your talent lies. Um, is is quite important. Um, I mean, just just from my experience of, you know, uh, on and off doing various teachings, you know, here and there with you know undergrads and stuff like that, like or people that I remember who were in my MA. I'm like, oh, I don't think you should be on an MA. I, I really strongly don't think you should be here. Um, and I know that you're here because universities are now businesses and they just want the money. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's a very, it's a very complicated thing. Cause you know, but I think what's, what's great though, is, is you, you know, how many kids are being disserviced by not having a teacher like that who, who can, yeah. who's going to, who wants to take you under their wing and is also going to be really blunt and honest with you about, you know, about your work and how to, and how to improve it and where to, you know, where to not waste time. You know, if it's, if it's stick figures that are that look like blobs you know <laughs> don't do don't do the illustrations but your stories are cracking you know that's where your that's yeah. where your strength lies um yeah it's 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 weird it's important i think yeah i mean i've had uh, i had a similar experience i did ma in creative writing as mm. well and the two things i'd say about it is it's amazing how uh writers uh you know who are just starting out seem to be great at critiquing other people's work that <laughs> seem to feel that their own work is somehow uh, they they bought into the myth of the muses that when they oh, work yes. it's come and settled up the muses have come and settled on their shoulders and you know and uh, the amount of times i heard oh but that's not my vision after a, a you know one of the published authors who was teaching the course oh. would critique them and you go that's yeah. not my vision you go well that's fine if you just want to write for yourself for the rest of your life and not get published or yeah. you know not get taken seriously as a writer that's fine but don't expect then you know I mean I uh, have been I've got I've been published 14 books I think I've had published and I still get an editorial letter I'm always breathe a sigh of relief if it's less than six pages long or few yeah. the editorial <laughs> letter and um it's your and you learn so much from going mm. through that i mean yeah. i i often say that editors should get co-credits on the front of books for the amount of input and shaping of the book that goes into it and virtually every editor i've worked with has said mm. very um you know uh, very modestly no we we'd never want that but honestly um yeah, you know the, the amount they do behind the scenes to make you look good is amazing. Yeah, yeah. But, I suppose uh, it's a bit like a film, isn't it? Like you mm -hmm. know, you have the director, you have Peter yeah. Jackson's Lord of the Rings, but under Peter Jackson is the the hundreds or a thousand or so odd people who made that film happen. You know, and it's like you are the main you're the main visionary behind this thing. And then you have all these people that, you know, so I, I sort of, I sort of get it though. I sort of get why they're like, no, 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 we're, we're fine to just be, you know, the behind the scenes people, you know, we're the, we're the visual effects artists and things like that. I think, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, they, they, it's kind of like, I always credit them in the acknowledgements and stuff. Yeah. That's it amazes me when authors don't. Because yeah. you think, well, they put in so much work. Yeah. But the the other side to it is, it's uh, you know, um, when the the author, I don't know what your experience was, but on my MA, the mm. authors who were teaching were uh, so the two who were teaching me were um, literary in inverted commas novelists. Yeah, but they had no snobbery about that whatsoever. So I was writing genre fiction. That was, it was my first horror novel, which was then my first published novel that came out of it. 
And uh, the other students on the course, almost, I'd say 95% of them were very snobby about my work because oh, yeah. it was plot driven and it was genre and whatever. The, the two literary novelists who had acclaim and success who were teaching things weren't snobbish at all about it. Mm. And what was funny was there were two of us off that course who got published and did reasonably well. The rest of them who were very like, oh, you know, should you use that word there? Or, you know, that's, uh, you know, we believe in character driven things and whatever. And we're very snobby about their literary novels. Never heard from them. Never even had, never had a short story published in an online magazine or anything. You just, yeah. And um, I think that's quite a telling truth. Oh, yeah. I think so too. I when I look back, I I've not seen or am I, or am I aware of any other than maybe one one other person from my from my class who who has had some stuff published since since RMA, um, which was back in twenty sixteen. That was long, you know quite a long quite a while ago. I, I haven't seen anyone else you know produce produce anything, and there was a little bit of that. There was a little bit of that, and this is where I'm kind of like there is a I think on an educational level. You know, it's good to get this stuff when you're young, when you're in, you know, mm. elementary school and junior high and high school, because I'm, I'm from the States. So that's that's yeah. my point of reference. Um, but like also when you're if you're going to do an undergrad that, you know, that needs to be much there needs that needs to be kind of a baptism by fire um, mm. where nowadays a lot of undergrads, those courses are are very much like they're the they're the um, they're the customers. So they we have to make the customer happy versus they're actually there to learn and sharpen their yeah. skills. And and then by the time they get to MAs, you're just sort of like, because yeah, I, there was a bunch of people on mine that were, I, like I said, I, I they had no business being there and I, I couldn't take any of their advice seriously. But the lecturers were great. They were a mix of, of literary fiction and genre fiction. Um, and, 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 you know, I, they were, they were wonderful. No one was kind of snobby about what you were writing. They were really cool about balancing, balancing everything. Um, I do have a question about sort of influences, though. So it's interesting. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that you kind of got kicked off with Tales from the Crypt and, you know, the, the horror stuff. But your, you know, your, your catalog is, is, is interesting and quite, quite diverse because you, you've done, you know, YA stuff, which, which has a lot of horror, horror elements. And you, mm -hmm. you've done, you know, you're doing crime fiction and stuff like that. Um, so outside of like Tales from the Crypt, what were the sort of big uh, and also, you know, obviously inspiration from your family and, and the stories they told you? What were the other kind of maybe literary influences that that were inspiring you as you were growing up? So the big one for me was uh, on my mother's side, they weren't from the traveling fairground background. They were what we call Joskins, which means that they were just settled people. Right. And my granddad was a gas fitter, but he was uh, all the way through his life. He was um, a trade union kind of leader and mm. um very, believed in education you know to the hill and was a great library user and everything like that so he used to actually read to me uh, mm -hmm. when I was a kid and one of the books was a was a kind of like a, a child's version of the Hound of the Baskervilles right. and I remember vividly being in bed him reading the opening chapter essentially mm -hmm. and that famous moment where um, Dr Mortimer comes to Holmes and uh, he's read the transcript, you know, the legend of the, you know, the, the manuscript of the 
giving the background to the legend of the Hound of the Baskervilles. And Holmes is very dismissive of it. Mm. And he asked that famous question when uh, Dr. Mortimer says, around the body of Sir Charles Baskervilles just died, there were footprints. Mm. And Holmes says, footprints, a man's or a woman's. And I remember vividly my granddad pausing, taking an intake breath and saying, Mr. Holmes, they were the footprints of a gigantic hound. Mm. And I remember that just the hairs on the back of my neck bristling to attention and that, yes. that thrill of um, the gothic mm. kind of um, entering, you know, my soul for the first time. <laughs> and I just fell in love with Sherlock Holmes from that moment and mm. read all of the home stories and then went back and kind of looked at Poe, obviously, which was the big influence and the Dupin stories, um, mm. you know, on uh, Conan Doyle. And uh, just, and I think, you know, a lot of people now, because we're, we're very firm now, if you go into bookshops, we're very firm on genre classifications yes. in a way that the Victorians and before weren't, because right. all these genres were being born essentially out of, yeah. you know, the romantic movement. And so we forget that like Poe was not only the author of like all of these great Gothic ghost stories and horror stories, but virtually, you know, the inventor of the modern detective story. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that horror and crime as genres are close cousins. Yeah. And it's only as we go forward, like, and we get to the golden age and, you know, there's theories about this, but I, I tend to go with the theory that it was a reaction against, you know, what had happened in the First World War, that mm. the crime novel began to lose the horror of itself mm. and became more of an intellectual puzzle, which I absolutely love. I mean, yeah. you can talk about Agatha Christie, but I'm a huge fan of Christie. Mm. Um, but like, I think kind of like I've always been fascinated by the fact that these genres were born in the same melting pot. And it just mm. so, so for me, one of the early influences was definitely uh, Conan Doyle and the Sherlock Holmes stories. Nice. And I just devoured kind of everything to do with Holmes. I went, mm. I got kicked off the Sherlock Holmes London walk when I was 11. <laughs> 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 because I, I corrected the tour guide. Oh, I know. Very precocious, annoying child. But he basically got the um, the adventure of the solitary cyclist and the adventure mm. of the priory school mixed up. Okay. There's obviously cycles in both the stories. Yes. And um, I remember correcting him, and like I, I just think he was he was just really pissed off at this eleven year old kind of telling him his business. But I absolutely loved it, and I used to haunt. Um, there was a brilliant bookshop, and um, Maxim, who you know, huge figure in crime fiction still, but who owned yeah. Murder One on the Charing Cross Road. Yeah. And I used to just be in there all the time. And uh, picking up, you know, Sherlockiana and stuff. Yeah. And I don't remember it's still there, but the um, the Westminster Library on Marylebone Road has a Sherlock Holmes collection, a dedicated Sherlock Holmes collection. Probably, because I think my, f I think that's the library my friend Catherine Cook works, and she's in the Sherlock Holmes Society of London. Catherine. I think, yes. 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 So yeah. she will not remember me. But I made, she might. Uh, she has a really good memory, man. Yeah. I mean, I was probably 10 when I we used to have to make appointments right. to go and visit the library. And Catherine would show you the collection. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, and what a um, fun connection we didn't know that we had. <laughs> yeah, yeah, isn't it? And like, I remember going three or four times. My granddad, he used to phone up and make the appointment. And we really weirdly, I mean, we're going off slight tangents here, but I met an American couple who yeah. were members of the um, uh, the Baker Street Irregulars. You know, right? Famous, um, yeah. Sherlock Holmes Society. Is it in Boston they're based or something like that? Uh, I can't remember where they're based, but they meet up every year in, in New York. But I but right. wherever their head office or head point is, I, I I don't know. And I met them. They were lovely. I thought, I, and they may have passed away by now, but mm. I was quite young at the time. But they were so kind. And mm. we, we just met at the same time. So Catherine was there showing me the collection and they were there. And they were so kind and they were like, they used to write to me three or four times oh. a year, give it with little care packages, because I said to them, I'm the only person, I, no one at my school likes it, you know, oh. and I was devoted to it. And they used, used to, they were very nurturing. And I remember when I was about 17, 18, mm. I went to university and at that time, you kind of like, you're starting to go out and you're mm. having, going to bars and whatever. And it's a whole new world. And I remember vividly the letter they wrote to me saying, this happens to all of us as Sherlock, Sherlockians, that when we get a little bit older, as we often come to it as children, when we get a little yeah. bit older, we lose it for a couple of years and yeah. then we come back to it. Yeah. And they said, don't worry about not writing to us for a few years. But when you come back to it, and I did, I got to about 25 and I came back to it and I wrote oh. to them again. And yeah, so it That's was, um, I know. And like, so I've got so many lovely memories of that. And that's mm. really one of the big influences, Conan Doyle. And um, and the odd thing, again, I'm going off on a tangent, was how much I actually loved the stuff around the pastiches and stuff. Mm. Because my favourite Holmes film is not, like an adaptation of the hand of the basketball or anything it's um murder by decree yeah yeah christopher plumber jack the ripper yeah it seems to me so steeped in um you know he oh, oh he is wearing the deerstalker in london which is you know whatever yeah but it's probably the best acted uh holmes film yeah and also um he gives off that vulnerable Holmes, which for me was a model. When I came to write, create uh, Scott Jericho in the Jericho books, he's he's got a lot of Sherlockian things going on, but he's yeah. very emotional and yeah. outraged at injustice. And you yeah. really see that in that Christopher Plummer version of Holmes. Yeah, yeah, I I love that. That that is a very that's a very good film. It's interesting what your what your friends the 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 American couple that are Baker Street regulars mentioned to you because I I had the same experience um, with Holmes. I loved Holmes as a kid, and then yeah, around sixteen seventeen, you know, kind of fell away from it, um, uh, but then picked it up again at around twenty two. Yeah, um, and sort of, and it's and it's stuck with me for the for the you know remainder of, of my life. So you know, so far, you know, it's, it's never really you know gone away. It's always been kind of a, a presence, kind of kind of around. So that's fascinating. That they said that because yeah, I, I totally I totally get that. And uh, yeah, Holmes is an interesting um, kind of first influence, not first, but what early early influence. Conan, Conan Doyle is really fascinating because again, much like Poe, he he didn't just write crime. He wrote uh, horror stories. He wrote his he tried to write historical novels, um, and all, all in you know adventure fan you know adventures adventure stories and things like that. He was he was you know he was he was very you know yeah diverse in his in his in his craft, which is something again like if you think about now 
how many how many authors are are pigeonholed into yeah. you have to just write this and it's like well maybe yeah. i don't want to just write that maybe like you know walter mosley is lucky because the guy's able to write amazing crime fiction but then also goes out and writes science fiction and stuff like that but we don't all get that luxury anymore I mean, I feel I've been very lucky in my career that I've been allowed to write yeah. in different genres, and it is so rare. Yeah. I mean, I see so many authors who, you know, have amazing careers, massively successful, but it's like they're only allowed to write that one book. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I've done rom -com, YA rom-coms. I've done yeah. YA mysteries. I've done supernatural um, YA um, obviously now adult crime, I've done adult horror novels, but it's, um, you know, and I, do you know, I think there is a thing, again, it's about literary snobbery, that you're kind of, that diversity in some circles is not seen as a good yeah. thing. Yeah, It's seen that, oh, you're a bit of a, a dilettante, you're a kind of like, you know, you're, you're just yeah. trying lots of different things. And yeah because you haven't got the skill to excel in one thing, you know? Yeah. But it's, um, but yeah, years ago, like in the Victorian age, there was, there wasn't that kind of thing, no. you know, Dickens novels, if you were trying to, very difficult to put a genre on Dickens, but he, right, yeah. but you know, mystery, horror, ghost stories, love stories, yeah. historical epics, you know, yeah. he did them all. He did. He did. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, kind of, you know, we got an idea of, of your inspirations, but I'm also curious about your your writing process and maybe mm -hmm. maybe how your writing process has changed. If you want to, like, kind of go back to maybe your first novel and what what that writing process was like versus what you're how you do it now. Yeah, I think it's uh, I always describe writing as like any other skill that uh, in theory the more you practice it, the better you should become at it. Yeah. So like practicing a musical instrument, this is why I always say to kids, uh, there's no real secret to it. Don't, I hate it when authors mythologize writing yes. as though it's some kind of arcane mystery that a select yeah. few, you know, it's really just sitting in front of the laptop and hammering away at the words until you get to the end. Yeah. Um, and you know, all this kind of thing about, you know, oh, I can only feel, it's the muses again. I can only write when I feel like right. Well, yeah. then it's going to take you 20 years to finish. <laughs> yeah. So, and I just think it's, it's just work, really. Yeah. But, um, yeah, my process. So the only thing I will say is that the more you do it, the more efficient you become at it. So when yeah. I wrote my first novel, which has just been republished by Cemetery Dance, a lovely package they've done for it, uh, called Through a Glass Darkly, which is mm. a horror novel um a couple of things one is I didn't know whether that would be my first and only novel mm. so I threw everything in the kitchen sink at it uh all the things I loved about horror mm. so it is possibly slightly overstuffed but I think you know sometimes uh more is more can be a good thing so um you know uh so it's got lots of input it's got mr james it's got stephen king it's got hp lovecraft it's got a bit of everything it's got a bit of clive barker in there mm. um but it took me from getting the ideas together to write it took me probably two years um and if i compare it to now i wrote killing jericho is in the first draft in six weeks jeez so <laughs> Uh, oh, so I wish I could, I'm not. I'm not that fast. God, if I'm that fast, I can get novels out all the time. Christ. 
I mean, that one, the Killing Jericho had been brewing in my brain for a number of years. I mean, the other thing that I tend to find is, um, well, before I move on to that, I will say you become more efficient at editing before you send it off. So you just get to know the rhythms of your story better and what is working and what's not working. Um, The other thing, though, is, so for Killing Jericho uh, and all of my books, what I tend to find is I have an idea for a book, and but I won't sit down the day after I've had the idea and start writing it. it can take anywhere between four or five months mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to ten years before sure, I feel yeah. that the story is ready to be told. Right. And with Killing Jericho, because it's a story that is set in my family background setting of a, of a uh, traveling fairground and yeah. deals with all the law the personalities, the strengths and the, um, you know, the, 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 the less good side of that community as well, that I kind of felt intimidated about writing it. Mm. So it wasn't just that the story wasn't ready. I had to feel that I was brave enough to write it and sure. I could do the story and the people justice in it. But so I think kind of like, but in a, on a more general sense, or each of my books, I think it's up to the reader as to whether I've got better, but I've certainly got more efficient mm. in yeah. the uh, writing of it. Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. You know, you're right. You know, in terms of the, um, the more you do it, the the, the better the better you become. And, and editing is such an important part, but also so is that time of just like letting the story mull over in your mind. Mm. Um, and getting it to the point where you where you are ready to write it, um, yeah. even if even if that writing process it can't if you can't if you can't bash it out in six weeks, like you know, it's if you still take that time to kind of really think it through, I, I do think the writing process is not necessarily easier, but it's a little bit little bit more straightforward. Um, yeah. When you when you write, are you um, are you really uh, kind of kind of, uh, kind of uh, bullet point? oriented like you know what's going to happen when it's going to happen and you kind of work from that or do you do a little bit of what val mcdermott says kind of driving in the in the fog um i i uh i always say with this kind of question because i think again you can get writers who are very prescriptive and i hate that yeah so you know you get the writing advice that says this is how to do it and then people go oh well maybe i'm wrong maybe i shouldn't be a writer at all because that's not Mm. how i approach I think that's really wrong. So all, whenever I give advice like this, I always just say, this is what works for me. But then mm-hmm. I point out all the people who are great writers who work in a totally different way. Yeah. So like, yeah, Val, uh, she, she, you know, I bow to no one in my admiration of Val McDermott and like, yeah. fantastic. And Stephen King is much the same way. He, he's got this kind of like uh, metaphor of, writing being like an organic process that we Mm. stories are there to be plucked out of the sky in a kind of way and so Mm. he's not a plotter at all yeah I tend to and I think it's just a confidence thing even now I tend to get the idea and then I will bullet point it on say one side of A4 probably not much more than that Mm. and then there are an amazing authors and I'm trying to think of one at the moment I was um Oh, so I did this on a YA level, but I mm. think it was Lex Crouch who I did a panel with the other day who, um, uh, I think it was Lex, I'm trying to think, anyway, no, it was Holly Jackson, sorry, who is very much a plotter and has, um, you know, a uh, cork board <laughs> with all the, <laughs> yep. you know, 
uh, bits of string going from um, post-it note to post-it note. So what I tend to do is, yeah, just uh, an outline, bullet point, skeletal kind of outline of how it's going to go. But the one thing I always say is even if you are a plotter, don't treat that as a Bible that you have to stick with. Yeah. Yeah. So two th- two caveats, even though I am a plotter, I always say two caveats to it. One is if you plotted for a character to do something and then you've got into the story and that character's really come alive and you get to that point and it's an amazing twist. Mm. You just think, wow, this is phenomenal. But you've got to the point where the character is like, that character actually wouldn't do that because mm. they've come alive and become a layered character within the thing. You must never force the character into yeah. artificial behavior because yeah. the reader by that point will uh, know the character as well as you do. And mm. then what you've done is you've broken that bargain that we all do as writers and readers, which is you say, look, you know, the story never happened. Mm. So our deal is that I will sustain your willing suspension of disbelief by mm. making it as credible as it can possibly be. And that therefore you will then, uh, because, you know, I'm taking up not only your money, but your valuable time with this book. Yeah. And yeah. it's part of the deal. And if you cheat on that, then the reader is well within their rights to throw the book across the room, even if it's a fantastic twist. Yeah. So that's the, the one caveat. And the other thing I will say is um, uh, be, if you get a better idea as mm. you go through, then, uh, you know, scrap your plan and start again. Yeah. The example I can think of is in Killing Jericho, where I originally had a different murderer in mind. Okay. And, you know, obviously I won't say any spoilers, but as I was writing the book, another character really seemed to come to life. And I thought there's more to this person mm. than I originally thought. And um, and so that, you know, yeah, I changed the, uh, the ending. There you so. go. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm totally with you on that. You have to have that space to be able to, when those new ideas come in, like it's, it's fine to embrace them. Don't, you know, it's, it's it's fine to just, you know what, dismantle everything and re re rebuild the structure of your story. If you know that this new idea is, is much stronger and, and, and much better. Um, that's actually been this whole, all of 2023 has been me mulling over this story that I'm working on. I've written the opening about three or four times scrapped it every time because as i mull things over i'm like wait a minute no this is where it should go which means that everything i've done uh is not not wasted but it's 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 bits of it have you know carried over but it's like yeah being able to to have the guts i think to be like okay no this is the better idea and it's going to be more beneficial to take it all down and redo it is 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 much better um absolutely a question about sort of you know politics Mm. Um, is, is in, in your opinion, I think politics is such an interesting topic when it comes to storytelling, because over the last, in terms of, in terms of pop culture, there's been, you know, online back and forth debate, anger, crybabies, back, everything from people who are, who say they don't want politics in their story. They, they look at something like, you know, I don't know an example like they'll they'll say you know the new star wars movies don't do very well because they've injected too many too much politics and it's like well they don't do well because they suck um <laughs> not because <laughs> because of politics um in my in my opinion mm. um so i, I what and because and what's interesting to me is like when i when i look back at a lot of the stories that i really love you know as, as a kid and as an adult there's all there is political elements to them sociopolitical com- uh, you know commentary that that does happen even if it's 
in something as as you know lighthearted as a kid's book or as heavy as a you know kind of a, a dense you know noir thriller or something like that um so i guess my question for you is do do you think that that storytelling is is political um mm. and and if so why is it important um it, it, i mean i guess it depends on the story you want to tell um yeah many of my books are political. I mean, the most obvious one is a book called The Outrage, which is um, yes. set 30 years from now in a, a future fascist Britain where all LGBTQ rights have been obliterated mm. and it's illegal to be gay. You are There are state-sponsored conversion camps. There is um, a, a police force called Degenerate Investigations. And uh, everything that happens in the book to the LGBTQ characters has happened to real people. So it's all yeah. in either this country or abroad. Yeah. So that's a very political book of mine. Jericho is political. Uh, there's He goes into a town where the, the crime is happening and there's a far right group uh, that is exploiting the fact that a mosque is being uh, built uh, in the town. Mm. And, um, and Jericho actually says that years ago, which is true, like years ago, um, it would have been us, as in traveling people, who would have been the ones to be chased out of town. And mm. now the fairground has been almost domesticated in the British imagination as a quaint thing that is welcomed yeah. onto the green for like a week or two or whatever. But he says, Jericho says, oh, they've got new bogeymen now. Mm. Uh, you know, and yeah. um, but they only want the fair there for the length of time that people enjoy it, yep. you know, and then you're not welcome. Yeah. So I think it, it depends on the story. Um, I think sometimes writers can shoehorn in politics into a story that either doesn't bear the weight of it or mm. it feels shoehorned in. I think if it definitely. feels natural, then definitely put it in. Yeah. I mean, and even in those stories where people hark back to stories and go, oh, these weren't political stories. The Sherlock Holmes stories are full of politics. Oh my God, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, the one that always brings, uh, you know, and it's easy for us to look back and chortle at it, but Holmes was a great, um, you know, and America has changed politically since those days, as, awesome. as Britain has. But there's that very famous one. Um, I think it's the Noble Bachelor where, you know, there's an American character and Holmes says oh I look forward to, you know I'm sorry about <laughs> the skirmish our two countries had you know <laughs> and you know and he says I look forward to the day when the stars and stripes may be quartered with the union flag again yeah. <laughs> what yeah. <laughs> you know that we become a state you know <laughs> dependency or something but yeah they're, they're very political and um you know uh, and even Agatha Christie because a lot of people I feel get her wrong mm. She was a small C conservative in yeah. many of her opinions, yeah. but she was also a liberal. Mm. You know, she she would be very much if we, I mean, it's, it's hard to take historical characters and put them in, uh, historical people and put them into modern political Yeah, yeah. It's almost a futile thing to do. It's we we can't judge futile. them by today's no. liberal like, conservative. No, obviously... Uh, said things and wrote about characters, you know, yeah. uh, in uh, the, the parlance of her time, and yeah. we would find much of it objectionable. But the the, the, the example I always raise with her is uh, is in A Murder is Announced, the brilliant Miss Marple, um, mm. 
novel, The Murder is Announced, where there is quite obviously a lesbian, middle-aged lesbian couple in the mm. book. And they are not patronised by Christie in the writing of it. They are shown as a very committed, loving... You know, it's n- never said that they're lesbians, but it's quite right. clear they are. Yeah. And without any spoilers, when something happens to one of them, the rage and grief of the other is, yeah. you know, palpable. And so, you know, you could say, oh, well, Christie wasn't a political writer, but there are, you know, domestic yeah. political dimensions to her books as well. Definitely. I think people who are harken back to some golden age that doesn't exist, then try to co-opt writers from mm. this so-called golden age yeah. to um, to their own purpose. And often it's they've never read a word of what yeah. these authors have written. Yeah, it's because it's interesting. It's like because as you're mentioning earlier, like there's the there's the way that you know when it's natural to the story that that yeah. whatever commentary you're trying to make you know fits fits in. I mean, my the novel I wrote for my PhD, which is called Wasteland, um, has all sorts of socio political commentary about the way the British government um, treated and handled Lithuanian immigrants uh, mm. post World War One and basically tried to kick them all out of the country uh, mm. because they didn't want them there anymore, which feels very, rem- you know, feels very much like today with how we, you know, how we view immigrants here, like the, the government doesn't want them here. Mm. Being it being an immigrant myself, I, I fully understand that. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, it, it, it's, you know, when it's important to the story, I, you know, I totally get it. But then I, it does make me think of things like, um, slight, slight tangent here, but like Star Trek, you know, modern Star Trek is, is I think written by children. It's, it's written by people who don't know how to write compelling political satire, um, or allegory. Whereas if you go back to the 80, the nineties and the, you know, sixties TV show, a lot of that stuff was handled you know that the the show is so political. I mean, you know, if you think mm. I, I don't know. Were you, were you a big Star Trek fan? I can't remember. I, I'm I, I you know I watched all of them. I wouldn't say I'm, my partner's a massive Star Trek fan, but okay, yeah, I'm not on that level. But yeah. okay, so like, like one character I'll just briefly mention is like the mm. character of Jadzia Dax. I mean, you have is it, this is the '90s. You have a blatant blatant bi character that has you know. Uh, potential potential readings of 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 kind of uh, transgender aspects going on because she's you know she's the one with the slug inside of her and the slug moves between her and men and women uh, right. in the in the trill in the trill world so like her her ideas of of sex and gender are are you know totally different to you know but like you know when you look at that kind of stuff you know it's funny people look at that will look back at that but they won't pick on that for being you know whatever the whatever the word is they want to, i guess they want to call it woke like but then they'll look at some of the new stuff today and it's like well you know they'll say trek was never like this well trek was always political it's just that right now a lot of the writing is 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 bad it's and yeah. that's that's the that's the thing it's like if you it's it i think it's important to stories because i think it's important to challenge the the viewers the readers the listeners with with these things um and i think by the idea of thinking that stories shouldn't be that way i think it's not it's not helpful in my opinion well it's i i it's very difficult to think of a story you know i mean there, there must be examples that i can't think of at the moment but that don't reflect mm-hmm. politics even with the small p yeah um like uh, i've just been for a project and i i do this when i go into schools i do a history of horror presentation uh, nice. so we go all the way through the roots of horror and it goes back way further than you know people generally think you know because in schools they generally go oh it began with the castle of otranto 
yeah. Horace Walpole, you know, grew out the romantic thing, and you think, no, the roots are much further back than that. Yeah. But like um, when I talk about, uh, I often talk about folk story, folk tales, and um, fairy stories, you know, in terms of horror. Yeah. And when you look at we, many of them, we don't know when the original versions were told. But there's no doubt that when you look at those old, that they were talking about the relative place of people in society, gender dynamics within that. I mean, mm. the one that I always think of is um, the, the the reason uh, some of them were told, uh, you know, where, you know, we think the crucible of some of these stories, we, and they're pure horror stories, is, um, you know, the, uh, Romania, kind of like Eastern Europe, maybe even Germany and stuff. When, you know, it's the wolf and the bear mm. are, the met- are just metaphors for human beings. Yeah. Because we know because they've now dug up graves in these kind of areas and there are people and children with human teeth marks in the bones around mm. the period when these stories were, you know, just eating. And it was like, so because famine was sweeping across these areas at that particular time. Mm. So these stories it, are in a sense, political, because they're saying, don't wander into the woods, because look at what's happening to society. You yeah. may be abducted, you may be, your child <laughs> may be taken not by a wolf, but by a human being, it will cannibalise yeah. yeah. And um, And what's really interesting, I think, is how the kind of, these kind of Ur legends, you know, these basic stories, are then reinterpreted to reflect the political and social dynamics of the day. So I always say to children, what is the most famous? So we go from like Red Riding Hood with that mm. wolf. What is the most famous um, werewolf story that mm. has ever been written? And they, they they ponder, because there aren't that many werewolves, you know. Yeah. Not like Dracula for the vampire story or whatever. And we always come to it eventually. We say Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's a werewolf story. It's yeah. a story of transformation. He, de- the, the, you know, he doesn't become a wolf, but it's mm. a werewolf story in essence. But and it, it's taking that basic story, and Robert Louis Stevenson then reinterpreted and reflecting the politics and the social, you know, mm-hmm. the, the hypocrisy of Victorian society that you yeah. cannot show show your or your um, uh, total personality to the world, and what that does to a person. And it's yeah. not that, um, you know, there's a queer reading, obviously, of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but it's mm. not that his evil comes from the things that he hides. It's the frustration, uh, the rage that builds up inside him because he cannot be everything that yeah. he is. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that's why I think we're constantly telling the same stories to each other, but we're dressing them up in the political and social and religious conflicts and anxieties of our age really yeah absolutely this it's it was interesting because one of the things that i had i sort of had to um argue in my in my in my phd was uh a little bit about about that and that is um you know the 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 usefulness of kind of pastiche and and is postmodern fiction you know the the kind of the death of the novel the fear of the death of the novel is the novel really ever going to die um and it's like you know you know you have these all these modernist writers and and academics who are like oh my gosh we've we've reached the pinnacle and it's like well I, you know you a lot of them aren't really any different to postmodern authors you know they they are 
you know, they there might be you know they might have a bit more uh, there might be a bit more uniqueness to maybe say uh, voice and stuff but at times not not necessarily always but at times you know someone like a Hemingway someone like a Henry James or whatnot will have a you know a Virginia Woolf will have their their unique distinct voice and those yeah. are the modernist writers that we that we look up to today, um, but like when you really look at like the the story the stories that they're writing. Yeah, they're just you can go back further than them and and see these same sorts of themes from like you know, go back and you see it in, in myths and legends and things like that. And then, you know, so it's like we're, we I agree, we're totally always kind of redressing, you know, kind of these really kind of crucial things around human nature. Um and and redressing and repurposing it and 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 having it kind of reflect our time, you know, like you said, like, you know, modern readings of or interpretations of Jekyll and Hyde, you know, we, that, mm. we see that all the time because it's, it's kind of universal. It's, it's something that's always going to be timely. And it's like, um, uh, you know, in going back to Sherlock Holmes, as he said, mm. you know, when he is talking about the importance as a detective of knowing the literature as in the, the true literature of mm. criminal, you know, history, because yeah. he said there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, and there isn't, and this is what always makes me laugh when a publisher comes out with, "Oh, this is a brand new twist on this," or "This is what I know." It's always been done before, but we're dressing it up in different ways, and it's like, and it's not plagiarism. It's like, well, it, I mean, there's a really interesting study. I think it was Julian Simmons in, mm. I think was it called the Subtle Art of Murder, where he basically did a history of the uh, detective story and the crime novel. Oh, is it Bloody um, Murder? Oh, Bloody Murder, yes. Yeah, yeah. Bloody Murder. I have it it's somewhere behind me, yes. Yeah, it's brilliant. And I think he says it's almost a futile thing to do, to try and trace the first. Oh, because yes. Because, like, um, T.S. Eliot said, um, Wilkie Collins of the Moonstone, it's the yes. first, the best, and the longest um, detective story. And it's, it's kind of not. Mm. But, um, I mean, I don't know whether it's the best, but saying it's the first is tricky. But, yes. like, uh, and Julian Simmons goes right back, even before the Bible, but there's a story in yeah. the Bible where deductive reasoning is used. I can't remember mm. what story it is, but you go back to the ancient legends and, you know, because what it is, is I think the detective story for me is we live in a terrifying world as human beings. We're fragile creatures on a yeah. largely inhospitable planet, yeah. whether that's kind of like, um, you know, because of our own mistakes and, awfulness through wars or whatever or yeah. because just the climate is and so we're constantly low-level terrified all the time <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. so what we really need is someone to come in and make sense of it for yeah. us and put the world into some kind of order that we can understand mm. and I think that's why uh, you know after the first world war the golden age became so crucial for the psychology mm. of the country to say yeah I agree um, a catastrophic, catastrophic thing happens, although it's fairly domesticated in mm. the murders of those times. Yeah. Although I would argue against that as well. But by the end of it, the the, the um, you know the world makes sense again. Yeah, and it's been put back, and that's why you could. I mean, there's arguments you could say it's quite a conservative art form, but mm. again, well, I argue against that. You as mentioned well. Julian Simmons. Um, I really mm. agree with with um, his. Uh, he, he described golden age as, um, as essentially a fairy tale, mm. but he doesn't, it's not, he doesn't do it in a derogatory sense. He's like, no. it's, it's, it's an escape. It's, it's a fairy tale. It's, and, and that's, that's just 
part of that genre and that's that's part of its charm it's it's mm. you know real life doesn't get a nice neat bow in the way that a lot of golden age fiction does um you know like the if if you want to compare like you know the the noir stuff maybe goes a little bit more into the realms of of real reality a little bit where it's like at, at most noir novels end on a downbeat there's no happy ending the detective is always sad he never actually fully wins he doesn't get the girl or the guy you know what i mean like yeah someone's dead like it's it's not a good ending but you know the the, the golden age absolutely you know i mean we, it's no it's no coincidence that we have a kind of a resurgence with cozy right now given the pandemic and all the other nonsense that's going on that yeah, yeah I, I i'm with you on that that it's 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 our way of sort of you know escaping into something where we are going through some sort of chaos and allowing that chaos to be uh, kind of controlled and, and restored back to order by, by the end. And that's, that's, you know, I, people get really angry on Twitter or X whenever I like criticize or I criticize or whatever. If I mention that kind of aspect of golden age, it's like, Oh, you're just being mean. It's, it's a really important genre. I'm like, I didn't say it wasn't. I was yeah, like, but yeah. you have to understand what that genre is. And what that genre is, is, as Simeon says, it is a fairy tale, but that's a good thing. Embrace that's it. And it's like, um, I, I, while uh, Julian Simmons was uh, an HRF Keating, who I met mm. when they were very, very old men. And when mm. I was very young, I think I was about 11. Awesome. And I went to this weird proto-Harrogate, so before oh, the official cool. Harrogate began. And I was very, very young, and I met these absolute... Um, legends of, mm. like, who, who had known Agatha Christie. It was like yeah. a link between that. And uh, they were just charming, lovely people. And in fact, um, I, often, I, well, I tell this story is because um, the lovely, one of the loveliest people I met there was mm. Colin Dexter, obviously the Inspector oh, yeah. Morse um, novelist. And I said to him, I'd love to write detective stories one day. And I was about 12, I think. And he said to me, he inscribed a copy of one of his books and he said to me, read a lot, write a lot, and you mm. can do it. And he was so charming and supportive. And that's why my character is called Scott Jericho, because the book that he inscribed for me was The Dead of Jericho. Ah, yes, yes. But it's a little homage to him. But yeah, and like the only, so very, very quickly, it's like in the 90s when I was young and mm. I was a massive Agatha Christie fan, she was at the absolute lowest ebb of her reputation for a period mm -hmm. in the 90s. She was yeah. constantly being attacked by the new wave of authors, like mm. writers I admire, like Michael Dibden, and um, who's no longer with us, and um, Ruth Rendell. Mm. P.D. James still stood up for her, but, and um, they, uh, I remember being in a panel with Ruth Rendell, and she, she said, was kind of disparaging about Chrissy. She said, she'd like getting into a warm bath. It's very pleasant, but there's nothing to challenge you. And I was kind of like, well, baths are nice anyway. But, <laughs> but also the other thing I, I said, I put my hand up in a very precocious way. And I said to her, um, but like, I said, I don't think she is cozy. I said, look, let me, so one of her novels, a child is drowned in a water butt while she's mm. bobbing for apples on Halloween. A child is murdered. Mm. And in another one, uh, you know, a baby is abducted, killed by a mafia boss. Yeah. And then, you know, no spoilers, but I think we all know the story. And then it's yeah. kind of like um, a conspiracy 
happens to slaughter him in the most yeah. gruesome way imaginable. And you think, yes. is, is this cosy? I don't think so. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, it, it, in the writing, it's how it's done. You know, yes. you could write that as a very visceral thing, and she didn't because she wanted her style. But the themes that she was dealing with, um, infanticide, murder, mm. rape, yeah. you know, revenge, these aren't cosy subjects. Yeah, it's true. It's it's a really it's a really I, I I've always hated the term cozy, and I also kind of understand why certain cozy authors don't like the term cozy. Mm. The complication that I have with it is that you know by no means why would, would I say that Killing Jericho is cozy. It is far it is far mm. more noir than it is than it is cozy. Even though your big passions are are those golden age writers, like you know, it's, which is it is quite interesting to me, but um. I, I almost wish that we we didn't have that word for modern day golden age. It, it just yeah. it just doesn't you know. You have things like there are big authors out there like Richard Osman who, uh, you know, they're they're books that I don't like. I don't think they're you know they're they're very tame. It's it's you know it's very silly death and paradise kind of nonsense where mm. it's murder doesn't really mean anything. There's there's no real. Well, There's no like, real weight to it, but this isn't uh, this isn't a, a commentary on Richard Usman at all. But it it's yeah. basically you're absolutely right. And what some of them have mm. completely misinterpreted mm. is they've been blindsided by this word cozy, and yes. so they think not they think not only the telling of the story, but the subject matter should be yeah. tamed and fluffy in some way. Yeah. None of the golden age writers did that at mm. all. Yeah, I mean. Um, uh, Dorothy L. Sayers was mm. intensely gothic yeah. in her murders. Yeah. Um, Marjorie Allingham, the same. Yeah. It's a total misunderstanding of what the yeah. golden age was about. Yeah. And I fear that some publishers fall for it as well, where they think, oh, yeah. Um, it may even be in the editing process where they go, oh, well, this isn't cozy crime because you, you've got, say, a murderer whose uh, child is, you know, got a, a case where, say, a child mm. has been murdered. Well, that's not an appropriate. So they didn't do that in the Golden Age. They did it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's a complicated thing that drives me. It drives me nuts. Um, I, I a story I, I tell fairly fairly often is that there was one time I was speaking with an editor of a, of a well known publishing company, um, and they they did the crime uh, they did the crime fiction for them, and um, when they didn't know who Raymond Chandler was, I just sort of sunk right. inside, and I was like, okay, that's that explains a lot. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, there's other stories I can tell you outside the podcast but yeah it's, <laughs> there, there, there are moments where you're like okay this explains why we're so sort of tunnel visioned at times with with this stuff because you know the golden age i love i love homes I, you know love christy i love that kind of stuff they might not be um graphic per se you know there might not be you know you might you see the aftermath of the crime a lot yes. of times you don't see the you know i think i was talking to jonathan whitelaw recently he's like you see the knife in the body but you don't see the knife go in um, yeah. but you still see, but there's still crime. There's still murder. There's still horror mm. going on. Well, this is, this is what's odd about, um, with Jericho because mm. I've, I've kind of like, there were some gruesome murders in Jericho. Yeah. But it is, <laughs> well, I mean, very gruesome, but it is a kind of puzzle mystery. Yes. yes. But when I've spoken to it, they go, oh yeah. When I say this, I said the murders in Jericho are a little bit like the shower scene in Psycho. 
Mm. When people first saw that, they were convinced they'd seen a very, very graphic murder scene. They'd, when people yes. were asked coming out, how many times did you see that knife go into Janet Lee's body? And they say, oh, 16, 17 times. You never see it. You never. You, yeah. It's all the angles. It's all suggestion. And when you read Jericho, you think, you, oh, yeah, they were, we saw the, these brutal murders. You don't see anything. Yeah. You hear people, you either hear Jericho's reflections on photographs he's seen, or you hear people talking about the murders. You don't see one murder, I don't think, actually committed. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah. And so it's it's about suggestion. Um, yes. You know, but it's, uh, yeah. It's well, it's like you said earlier, the footprints of a gigantic hound. That suggestion, yeah. that, that sometimes it's the jaws it's it's the shark and jaws it's less sometimes is is a lot more and a lot of and you know uh, you can easily overdo it with the with the action and the fighting and the blood and stuff like that and uh you know even even a lot of times with my favorite noir stuff th there might be some action might, but you're not it's not always a grim gruesome murder that's happening live in front of you you know the detective yeah. might get into a bit more personal scrapes than say sherlock holmes or miss marple would but um yeah that's They're, it. Oh. It's kind of, yeah, I think uh, so. The second Jericho book is out in uh, February, and I mm. think it's the first out of kind of like we've got five, I think, murders, four or five murders that have happened mm. in the first one. We got about the same time, and the the last murder in Jericho too is the first one you actually see, right? And you and it's still at a remove. Yeah. So it's kind of like I've had people say to me, "Oh, yeah, it's so you know, it's very gruesome," and I. It's not really. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> I know what you mean. Um, well, we got we got to wrap up. I could talk to you all day. Um, this this was a lot of fun. Um, we'll definitely bring you back on when Jericho Two comes out. We'll we'll talk about that in more detail. Um, where can people find you online if if you uh, if you want them to? Well, I'm on uh, Twitter or X or whatever it's called mm -hmm. at the moment. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> at William uh, at W Hussey Author. Mm -hmm. And on Instagram, uh, at the same, I'm William Hussey Writes on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I still, I you can find me on, um, oh God, TikTok, but I very rarely Oh, right, it. yeah. W Hussey <laughs> Author again, because no one wants to see videos of me. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I yes, I think that's all of them. But okay. Yeah, and my website's uh, williamhussey.co.uk. Awesome. And for anyone listening or watching on YouTube, there will be links in the description of this video where you can jump to uh, William's uh, pages on his website or Amazon and whatnot to uh, purchase his books. Um, remind us, when does Jericho 2 come out? It's out the end of February, uh, I think the 28th or something. And then the paperback for Killing Jericho, the first Jericho book is out, I think the 18th of January. Wonderful. And what is the, remind me the, the, the title for book two. I can't remember off the top of my head. I failed as a podcast host no. at this moment. <laughs> Honestly, don't worry. It's called Jericho's Dead. Jericho's Dead, of course. Yeah. I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just starting Jericho 3 this week. So, uh, yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, well, again, I look forward to bringing you back on to catch up with you after Jericho 2 comes out or, or, or Jericho's Dead. And uh, diving into some, some more interesting topics. But uh, thanks, thanks for coming on the show, William. A pleasure. Thank you, Luke. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. The Secret Shepherd.